totally fine to just wander into any old topic, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I can't guarantee I'll have anything clever to say about any particular topic. You know, if you want to go into the Lydian scale or whatever, you're going to have to, you're going to have to lead the, lead the way on that one, I think. I mean, that's, that's my one area of expertise is the Lydian. <laughs> um, yeah, um, cool, man. Well, yeah, I figure like whenever we have conversations, it's always a good conversation. It's always like fairly like tunnel vision-y. And so, uh, you know, I figure we just have one of those and, you know, like you're definitely more anarcho than me, but I, I feel like I'm anarcho, uh, but not adjacent. As, yeah. I'm not as like passionate about it, but I'm, uh, I'm in that same zone. So like, if we can tie that back to like sort of our other things, like physics and creativity, that'd be cool. Or like art and music, um, mm-hmm. wherever possible, that'd be cool. But anyway. Um, all right. Uh, well, we're here on the bridge podcast. I'm with my friend, Daniel. Daniel runs uh, the Anarch YouTube channel where he goes over political philosophy, um, specifically related to anarcho-syndicalism. Uh, Daniel, welcome. Is that a fair description of what you do on your channel? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, other than perhaps that I might have wandered away from the label anarcho-syndicalist, more towards oh. just calling myself an anarchist at this point. Okay. And there are a bunch of other little uh, specifiers. My, my, well, you know, I'm an specifist. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I have some particular focus on communalism. Yeah. But, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's true. The channel's focus is on anarchist theory and uh, the philosophy that underpins it. Uh, it's not only just theory, however, it's also practice, how one mm. might actually build a revolutionary future, um, what sorts of actions we might carry out in order to build it ourselves as well. Beautiful. Well, um, I'm excited to talk about communism and capitalism and i wanted to start with a different c word which is coffee um how does coffee fit into your life uh, if it does still um is it just the sort of icebreaker question i always start with honestly i i love coffee um i'm sort of a caffeine addict in a general sense you know mm-hmm. like i i love caffeine and um personally insofar as coffee goes my most recent uh, love affair with coffee was mostly like bulletproof coffee, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, I just, I just found that it, it did what it advertised. It really did give me this intense mental euphoria. It felt like all the gears were turning right. It almost felt mm-hmm. nootropic, right? It mm-hmm. almost felt totally. nootropic. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed, uh, and I still uh, do enjoy bulletproof coffee. It's just when I'm not on keto, it seems like way too much fat to put in my body. You know? <laughs> yeah. Dude, uh, I've been I've been crunching my numbers for various food stuff, and like my fat is insane. Like I make a, a meal shake and just 200 grams of fat right in there. Um, for real. But yeah. like I, I cannot for the life of me gain one fucking pound. So um anyway. <laughs> uh so do you do it with like butter and MCT or just the butter yeah. or cool? Yeah, I use heavy whipping cream and or heavy whipping cream, uh uh, uh butter, um MCT oil. And I'll often put in just a splash of like almond milk or something mm-hmm. because it like gives it a little bit more body. It cools it down a little bit as well. And then maybe like a tiny, tiny bit of like one packet of stevia or something. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. uh, I find that's, that's really good, you know? And it's a great, it just replaces your breakfast completely. Totally. But with the MCT, do you do the, the fancy expensive uh, like C8 Caprylic stuff or do you do uh, 
the the Lorik and uh, Caprick as well. <laughs> no, I started at the bottom of the rung on that. Okay, like I I started by seeing like what is the cheapest way I can get right. monogene triglycerides, right? Mm-hmm. And so I actually did like straight coconut oil and would just throw it in there and shake it up super hard, and and it would just become. But, you know, I actually did find that the little bit of investment in a better quality MCT oil was what really made a big difference. The taste was a lot better. It seemed to work a lot better. Um, It was a better consistency. It dissolved better. All that stuff drove me to continually trying better and better quality MCT oils as I went. And now I'm actually buying the bulletproof MCT oil. Um, but uh, I haven't, I know that there's even some that are claiming to be better (laughs) MCT oils and I haven't tried any of those. Are you talking like the, we don't have to talk about yeah. that one, but, uh, <laughs> This is a long conversation about MCT oil, my friend. I don't know if you got an audience for this. <laughs> uh, when you say the bulletproof stuff, do you mean like the brain octane or like the, whatever they call it, like the ecstasy oil or XTC yeah, oil? Yeah, brain octane is what they're, what they're calling it. It's, it's, their, it's their MCT oil, right? Like, yeah. It is so good, but it's so fucking yeah. expensive. And God, I think know. knowing that uh, the guy that runs the company is making any money from me, but because uh, he's a schmohawk but anyway um cool well um now i now i know what it, your copy is like these days um let's talk about <laughs> politics but, cool so um okay so first of all so there's this dude that i know um who is kind of like the communist guy in a friend of mine's circle and i brought up uh the syndicalism thing to him and it, honestly i feel like he had so many like oh but this and this and i was like but you guys are on the same fucking team. Like, so uh, how, like how much variety is there within your sort of sphere of, uh, you know, this communist, I mean, I know you said you moved away from syndicalism uh, in terms of name, but like how much variety is there within this community? Okay, well, I mean, how much variety is there in the community that you might say of leftism? Like an astonishing variety, like so much that it's mind blowing. Uh, if you're talking about the sorts of people that I personally, the, the community that I place myself in, I'm, I'm purposely trying to cultivate an anarchist community or, or an anarchist and libertarian socialist community um, uh, personally. And this is because I've read a lot of history. Those, the, those, that response that you got uh, indicates to me that person is probably more of like an authoritarian leftist. They probably mm-hmm. do. They want to use the state. They think the state is going to do all of these um, capacities of reorganization that need to be done. And I am, I am uh, decidedly anti-statist. And what you'll mm-hmm. find is, you know, there's this uh, first inclination when you find out that anarchists and whatever authoritarian leftists are trying to get to the same goal of communism that you might say, there's a presumption that the best thing to do would be for everybody to group together and try to make some uh, uh, solidified front that will have the power to get the work done. But what you start realizing when you study the history is that when the rubber meets the road, these two views of the world are in extreme conflict. The anarchist is fundamentally theoretically predicated on not building hierarchies of power, okay? Not not institutionalizing hierarchies of power. 
you know, imbalances in power, you can't really change. That's just how it is. You know, people, there's both nature and nurture. You get imbalances of power, right? It's about institutionalizing power. It's about creating permanent hierarchies, wherein some people are given power over the lower rungs in the hierarchy. Um, this becomes a bottleneck on the on the on the of uh, our fundamental ability to reorganize power in society and to give power back to the people. Whereas authoritarian leftists want to build a state, an incredibly centralized, powerful state that takes all things into its hands and then reorganizes society to its will. And uh, you'll find that though we both suppose to have the same end goal, mm -hmm. um, it is very apparent from our actions that uh, we can't really cooperate, number one, because we actually are, we are sabotaging one another as soon as we act in these opposite ways, okay? And uh, number two, I, I've become increasingly skeptical that the vision that authoritarian leftists have of communism is in fact the communism of classical theory. It almost seems like they want some kind of weird dystopian world where everything is hyper-controlled and hyper-regulated and, and there's like this incredibly powerful police state that has complete central power and controls everything to itself. Um, I don't know how that can ever become uh, the world that we hope to create. So I, uh, uh, this is my, this is, I guess, sort of my best explanation to help you understand why they probably had that response and understand why, in fact, I do not have this left unity perspective and that I am very much narrowly and, and a libertarian socialist and an anarchist. Gotcha. So uh, in your mind, is the anarchist label is the umbrella term under which leftism is, or is left no, no. Is the leftist thing? I would, say, I would say the broadest category we're looking at here is the left. And in fact, there's some contention that the left is a thing, precisely for the reasons I just discussed. But leftism is, in my opinion, fundamentally predicated on the idea of uh, 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 labor politics, I guess is the easiest way to say it. The idea that the workers should own the means of production, kind of something we're more familiar with saying, but more, maybe more broadly, we might say social ownership of the, uh, of the administration of society. Okay, that's really kind of more broadly what's going on in leftist politics. And you'll find that if you get all the way to communism, you have full social ownership. Everybody has complete control over every aspect of society. That's the ideal of communism, right? Mm -hmm. The statists think that can happen by means of a state. Okay, they think that you can, a state can like represent you, like that it can, it can do, act in your stead, you might say. Whereas the anarchists believe that that is a naivety, that that is a reproduction of the same logic of capitalism, that somebody else can act in my stead, that there is that there are these there are those who like deserve to administrate society, there are those who deserve to have all of the power, and then there are those that that just simply act in service to those others, right? Mm -hmm. So what you'll find is this is kind of the fundamental split between those who want to use the state in order to achieve this, this social ownership of society and those who believe that social ownership means that the actual society, the actual people should have control over that society. So you'll find that one has a highly centralizing tendency and one has, has a highly decentralizing tendency. And I, I think that we're both on the same page in being very much about decentralization and sort of like a bottom up type thing. Um, I mean, it sounds like largely the issue with the state side is that's a top down sort of like, like if you're in power, great for you, like everything's going to be wonderful, I'm sure. But like, um, there's no sort of reasonable self-organizing thing that can happen if it's from the top down. So, um, I mean, it, 
I, I saw that you were mentioning some stuff about complex systems in one of the other videos, and um, that's totally my like my jam. Although, like from you know, the perspective of like a musician, so um, uh, can you talk a little bit about complex systems or like how you think uh, something like that might emerge from you know the bottom? Yeah. So I think uh, it's perfect that you would bring that up because in fact it was the next place I was going to go. I think that's the fundamental limit on why their system doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Why in demonstration, why they got, they, they, they shut out the anarchists. They sabotaged and destroyed their projects. They stopped any libertarian socialism from rising. They even stopped states which were on the more libertarian socialist side, such as Yugoslavia at the time. Uh, so they really went straight for their centralizing authoritarian tendency. And what they have to show for it is a bunch of states that devolved back into capitalism, essentially, right? And so the reason when I'm looking at this, I'm not coming from it in, a, in an ideological perspective now. At this point, I'm coming from it in a systems analysis mm-hmm. function. I'm really looking at like, well, how did you build the machine that does the things you're saying, right? And the way, and, and, and given that you built your machine in that way, you built the political machine that's gonna carry forth your, your future in a particular way, what are its tendencies gonna be? What, because of its construction, is it going to become, right? And, and this is very much like my physics approach in, mm-hmm. in my mind, you know, I'm really, really thinking about this in the way that like engineering a machine functions or the way that systems uh, uh, have to uphold certain conservation laws, but other places there's no conservation laws and, and how things are engineered such that they carry out those needs, right? I think, think, I think about things in this very systems oriented way. And it seems to me that um, the system they have built is not actually built to be complex, which is what they claim. They say that it's needed in order to confront a complex society. It actually seems to me that the exact opposite is true. And what they've built is a system that strangles creativity, that mm-hmm. strangles the ability of of, of us to actually overcome a complex society. What they think is the way you overcome a complex society is through like this hyper-centralized bureaucratic coordination. But it turns out that if you actually analyze how such a system might work, that that doesn't make you more complex. That doesn't help you overcome complex things better. That helps you try to simplify the world into a thing that you can control. It's it's Mm -hmm. as if you're trying to to take complexity and simplify it and then project simplicity back onto the world. You're projecting the simplicity, you're gathering the simplified data, then you're projecting back onto the world what you have built as per your simplified data. So I don't know if I've jumped too far ahead here, but the way I look at it is, okay, so if we're kind of starting from chaos theory. Now in Mm -hmm. chaos theory, we have this idea that a system is more chaotic by measure to the fact that um, uh, uh, as I have some doubt in my input, I will have very large doubt about my output essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Little tiny amounts of my error in an understanding where the information starts leads to huge amounts of error just a little ways away, okay? So that's what's happening in chaotic systems. In fact, that's almost like the rigorous definition of what a chaotic system is. Is Ergodicity or whatever? I think think that might be what that's referring to. But the idea is essentially, you know, even, even in a highly chaotic system, if I understood the system perfectly correct, and I, uh, uh, I had perfect data, I could still predict everything perfectly. 
The problem is, is that in chaotic systems, tiny amounts of error turn into massive amounts of error. Okay, so right. here's the thing. When you engineer any kind of system, you're trying to reduce that to some degree, right? You, mm -hmm. Because it, then you can't uh, specify what a component three or four rungs down the way is going to do. You know, if I have a bunch of gears turning and they have to turn in a very specific kind of way with one another in order to carry out their functions, well, I need information to be conveyed very efficiently between them. I don't want there to be almost any error. Chaos down is what we're trying to do. We're trying to go straight to order, okay? As much order as conceivably possible, which means reducing the error in the conveyance of information from one juncture to the next. Here's the problem you can't actually reduce the error. What, you, what they have to do instead, in, in many of these capacities, they are fundamentally limited by their ability to gather the data about right. the world they're trying to interact with. So that means right off the bat, they've got a system where error is coming in. Just You just got error right off the bat in their ability right. to measure the world, okay? So then that means they built a highly specified system that has already washed out a bunch of complexity right off the bat, as soon as it gathers information about the world, and then it is a highly bureaucratized, simplified thing such that it has steady power conveyance from one, com one component to the next. And therefore, it is going to act back on the world in a highly simplified fashion, which is then right. going to try to constrain the complexity of the world. But the thing is, is this is the logic of how a machine works. But we're talking about human beings and ecologies right. and you know, societies here. Okay, you can't actually wash out all that complexity. And if you do, you will destroy everything that is beautiful about any of those systems. Everything that actually makes those systems what they are will be destroyed in the process. So this brings us to, I suppose, this concept uh, I've been studying a lot lately and which will come into my work very soon, a lot, even a lot uh, more, is this concept of self-organized criticality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you were to look at a graph of chaos and order, okay, what you would find is right upon the cusp of chaos and order, this is where the behavior of emergence takes place. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. But here's the thing. In order for you, the, the, you might say that all authoritarians want a hyper-ordered system, thinking that a hyper-ordered system is a hyper-rational system, right? But here's the thing. If the anarchist is saying, I want self-organized criticality, they are inherently asking them to dismantle their system. They're inherently asking anyone who is trying to do perfect order to stop. And, and that doesn't mean that they want chaos because once again, it's upon the cusp of order and chaos. It has right. to have flexibility in its elements. So the anarchist will appear to all those who want a stifling and suffocating political order as uh, uh, the devil. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think, um, I guess like I, I peruse stuff about chaos and uh, complexity and all that. Um, I, I think that our language is fairly similar, but um, in my mind, there's like, there's order then there's sort of unordered and then there's disordered, but like with ordered, it's like, to what degree is there clarity? Like, uh, can you, like with a very simple system, you can predict this causes that there, there's a clear chain of causality with a more complicated system, which can like appear complex, but it's like, it's still complicated. It's just like, it's not clear what the causality is, but then maybe there's, you know, complex where it's like more about, you have to probe and feel sort of the dynamics of something. And then chaos for me is like uh, kind of like 
no causal clarity and it's only there for novelty and innovation because um, otherwise there's nothing to do there. But I, I'm not sure if that resonates with you in terms of uh, definitions or terminology. What you're saying, of course, makes perfect sense. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, those are all those are all dynamics at play. Uh, I would say in this, you know, it, it might be that what like we're essentially looking at graphs with more than one axis here, right? So like one, we could develop the graph of just order and chaos by way of these simple means of what we've just discussed. Ability to predict based upon, based upon input information, based on you know, the output information. That we could just build the graph. And then what, I would, what I'm saying about that cusp is what you would find. We might then become interested, what's happening upon that entire line of the cusp and then we could analyze it, of course, in extra axes and ask ourselves, oh, well, you know, also uh, what is cause, what could be causing the chaos, right? Okay, and we put another axis extending out. It's like, oh, well, the chaos could actually, it could not have to do with complexity. It could be that we have simplicity and complexity on a whole axis here. We could look at that whole axis as well. And then maybe we'd have like a 3D region we're looking at kind of thing, right? And we could do this on and on, to be honest, and it might be valuable to do so. But I would say I'm interested in a general sense, all of this applies very directly to these precepts of centralization, the usage of, of highly organized coordinate bodies of coordination, um, uh, as opposed to the anarchists who want more flexible, more decentral uh, uh, systems. And mm -hmm. uh, what you'll find if you analyze those two approaches is that actually by measure of the value of complexity, which is, has mathematical measures, right? Mm -hmm. That the anarchist system is actually one that would produce more complexity, not less. And that, and that what looks like complexity in this, this hyper bureaucratization is not complexity. It's actually mm -hmm. homogenization, you might say, right? Uh, so you're saying you would get more complex results with like less, uh, like more bang for your buck in terms of generating complexity in the sense of beauty rather than like, this is a very like convoluted, complex, complicated system that's like gonna look like it's doing a bunch of, bunch of fancy stuff, but like a bunch of stuff's falling through the cracks and like, you know, having like bugs, uh, you know, go off and sort of decay or whatever. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you're precisely understanding exactly what I'm saying. And um, I think it's because of this uh, long rant, uh, because of the information I was discussing in my long rant to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. It's because of this fundamental inability of to actually convey information properly. And might I add, I mean, because I noticed you use the language of it having bugs. And mm -hmm. I would just really like to emphasize that I think 99% or greater of all of the things we might see as bugs in the mm -hmm. system are nothing of the sort. They are, in fact, they are baked into what the system must be in order for it to function as it does. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of these aspects of subjugation, domination, coercion, deception, uh, and all of that just fundamentally arises out of the mechanics of the system as it's been built. I mean, okay, so you remember how I said it wants to make everything into a machine, right? we are the components right you want to be a cog <laughs> you know like is that what you because that's what they want need us to be in order for that to function they need us to be like cogs in a machine right not mm -hmm. not like an ecology which responds and is in is complex and has has many different nodes and the flows of the system change and displace themselves and and the relations all alter as they need to in order to respond to varying stimuli none of that no, instead, the varying stimuli to be reduced, the people themselves that have complex needs to be reduced, 
everything is to be put into into the the schema of a machine and that is that is to me antithetical to the life impulse to the creative impulse of right humanity. yeah um yeah so i guess a lot of the problems arise in trying to apply simple or complicated things to uh, complex or, you know, it seems like there's like a, when you put the wrong thing in the wrong category, it sort of goes awry. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious if you're familiar with this idea of annealing, like neural annealing. Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with that phrase, no. Um, so I guess the term annealing comes from metallurgy, but uh, basically there are these people promoting this idea of neural annealing as kind of like this, you know, you inject a lot of high energy in the case of neurons uh, here, but like I feel like you could you know, see humans as the neurons of the, the brain country or whatever. So like you inject a ton of energy by whatever sort of means, say like, uh, you know, some sort of compound. And uh, basically it's like applying a huge amount of temperature that melts things down and then it recrystallizes in an emergent sort of self-organizing criticality type thing. Um, and so I, that's an interesting sort of like other world to me that I feel like has artistic implications, but like, I feel like this is what you're somewhat getting at on the societal level. Um, so I'm curious, uh, where does this self-organization come uh, or like how else do you see this coming about? Well, anarchism is primarily predicated on how all of the, uh, all of the ways that society functions will be reorganized as per the directly democratic desires of everyone within society. That society will be, will be taken away from atomization, competition, power hierarchy, and instead power will be maximally distributed. The hierarchies of power will be, will be minimized, which say, of course, maybe it's not possible to ever completely eliminate them, but we will be in a process of constant minimization and the power will be distributed. Uh, the, the, the ability to control the social flow of power will be distributed. But it's not that, you know, everybody doesn't have to distribute their personal uh, uh, powers of self, right? What makes them efficient and effective. It's not about making every single human being equal in a, in a, in a fact of, uh, of their actual ability to control the world. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. It's instead making it to where the ability to control the social flow of power is not monopolized. That in fact, mm -hmm. it is distributed in as much as possible. Now, this one of the ways to achieve this is decentralization, but we also shouldn't fetishize decentralization because, in fact, there will be needs for wide-scale coordination, but it's instead that that need must always root from the bottom. So if there are these bodies wherein everybody makes a decision together, it is not that somebody quote unquote, representing everybody right. makes that decision for them. It is that everybody who is the, in the, involved in that process is now grouped together to make a decision. This is called, this is, might be called, I've learned that this has a name apparently in political theory I'd never heard. It's called subsidiarity. Hmm. Those who are affected decide. Okay. And in anarchism, subsidiarity is just taken to its, its hyper level. Okay. Essentially everywhere where there is a power hierarchy, where there are those who control the total social flow of power or monopolize it, that is supposed to be reduced and then dis and, and distributed, uh, you know, to the people, their ability to control that thing should be distributed. So in a practical sense, what does that mean? 
Democratically, they should have council bodies where they just make decisions about how society will function. People, we, if we can, upon if we're talking about doing very large scale project, projects of reforming society as it might stand, we want to create enormous agoras, places where people actually can come in their communities and make decisions together. We can federate all of those council structures together. They are now in bodies at various scales where you have you know, a municipal, uh, you know, now all of these councils vote singularly, but their votes combine into this municipal level, or you use delegation, things like that, essentially, where you're going to have various levels and scales, and you will have one that will be fully unified. That's everybody making a decision together because everybody is affected by X decision, right? So I also am not trying to say that anarchism fetishizes decentralization, but it just turns out that a huge number of powers are currently way too centralized. And the solution mm -hmm. is a lot more decentralization, right? And that's what needs to happen in order for a bunch of these things to become more effective. So uh, how does anarchism say we carry that out? It says we reclaim power where, in, where it can be gained. We can, we, and we, we take it back from the systems as they stand and we neuter the systems as they stand from enforcing their power upon us, therefore also reducing their power hierarchy. So the goal for the anarchist is then to develop the praxis, which does those things. How do we build our own power concept? We sometimes call dual power. And how do we diminish the enemy's power? So there's a constructive and a destructive capacity to anarchism. Okay. Um, it seems also as if like, you know, besides the distribution of power, um, it seems like there's some benefit to be had in terms of flexibility from having like this more modular distribution of things. Um, is that something that is talked about in technical terms at all in this world? Well, I mean, the thing is, is like, the, what I would say is in some ways, one of the weaknesses of the way anarchists have approached this topic is that, okay, it's, and it has like this really long history to it, but the idea is that planning things really closely and like specifying very exactly in anarchist theory is often seen as um, uh, naive or like uh, castles in the sky kind of thinking, right? Where you're, whereas they think the practical approach is instead that, no, you need to feel out the conditions as they play out, understand how things are going to be. And then you adjust to how things are going to be. You build within the circumstances that are available up until the thing that you, you desire to see happen. Um, but I think that that sort of like forgets that we are building towards something in this process to know what you, if you're going to, if you're going to achieve something, you have to be able to discuss what you're going to achieve. So right, yeah. I personally am a way more constructionist, you might say, anarchist. And, uh, there are some that are, and, uh, so they're in weirdly as, as odd as the sounds, they're called utopian uh, socialists or utopian anarchists for doing so. I personally don't care about any of that. And I think it's a little bit uh, silly to call it utopian. To me, mm -hmm. it seems practical. It's like, no, we actually have to, what? <laughs> okay, let's say I carry out, I actually carry out like an armed revolution or something. Okay, let's <laughs> say that's what takes place. And I'm just going to rebuild society right off, right after that. You think, you think uh, we just don't need to have any conversations about that beforehand, about what we might want to put in place afterwards? Yeah, I think yeah. maybe we might want to have an idea of how we're going to restructure the, the supply chains and infrastructure. And, you know, like this is a complex conversation. And I feel like mm -hmm. I personally like having it. So I've provided some examples uh, in my video, in my video uh, after the revolution. I give an example of what you might say is a good like 
it'd be like a transition society, like what that society is that I just described that you'd want to put in place if you were to be able to carry out what I said. Um, but also, you know, I'm actually uh, very constructivist in uh, uh, how I propose that revolution takes place uh, insofar as praxis. I've already I've made a video called Constructing the Revolution. Um, I will be going even more into detail about the things that I think should be done in the video series that I'm currently writing, um, including this more um, uh, technical approach. Now, insofar as, because you also mentioned the word modular in that question, mm -hmm. some people very much have a view uh, that what needs to be done is there need to, needs to be made this one little modular model that everybody can pick up and then turn towards their circumstance and then pick up and then and then it just, you know, proliferates like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's valuable. Insofar as that can be made, I'd support it if it's effective. Um, I do have some doubts about the, about the limitations of being able to mm -hmm. build something so truly modular, it's gonna be able to uh, 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 address itself to every circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that if indeed it's something like that were going to be done, because it's the kind of thing I endeavor towards, what would have to be within this module, within this module is the capability to understand how the module itself would have to be changed towards your circumstances, mm -hmm. right? So that that's hard though, right? That's really hard. How do you build that in? That's that's the question. The ability for your modular uh, suggestion to uh, uh, adjust to circumstance. Mm -hmm. And be adaptive and all, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that has the, the opportunity to adapt in uh, the wrong way. And then- Exactly, it could just become statism the again. They're like, I'm adapting, man, I'm adapting. I'm just using, <laughs> you know, all the enemy's tactics. Uh, I'm adapting, you know, it's, it's like, mm -hmm. uh, okay. I don't think that that's not what I meant. <laughs> so um, there's this dude, Dave Snowden, who um, I feel like he's the guy that I sort of like, he's like my complexity guy. And um, he talks about how like the way to manage complexity or do complexity management is to have a bunch of safe to fail uh, things going in parallel find what resonates, amplify it, and like strengthen it basically. And I feel like there's a lot of this sort of vibe of like, we're gonna plan the perfect thing to implement and it's gonna be perfect. And like, you know, probably when it's implemented, it's gonna like have its problems. Uh, so do you feel like there is any sort of effort to like put a ton of different ideas out there, see what works like in parallel where it's kind of like, there's an opportunity for it to fail um, without any repercussions? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's one of the strengths of anarchism because it rejects that modular thinking where you're just building this little model that's just going to do all the work. Because it rejects that, it's extremely experimental. That's one of its strengths. That's the reason it's continuing on into this era past where all of the revolutions are, are gone and behind us. Why you still see anarchism being so successful is because it was always a very flexible mentality, right? So insofar as we're talking about all the different kinds of projects, like quote unquote, safe to fail projects. Well, I mean, you know, you could get, I don't know about the, the concept of safe to fail because, mm -hmm. you know, you have to take risks to do big things sometimes. And when you scale up, safety is going to go down, right? When your right. safety of failure goes down because now the thing supports more people. It's a, it's a, it's a structure that holds people up in the process. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that you have to take some risks in the safety factor, but I do think that you, we, we do want to uh, experiment with a wide variety of solutions. So just insofar as we're getting practical, because I'm a very, I'm a very, sometimes what I what I say is very abstract right mm -hmm. 
But like, for example, building neighborhood councils is something that ha is happening quite a bit within the movement right now, um, essentially, uh, or block committees, as they're sometimes called, or popular assemblies. It's essentially where what you're trying to do is you're trying to get all of the people that are responding to some issue in an area together. And it's almost like you're building a union of the people, you might say. And then they come together and they create one of these council structures. And in this council structures, they decide together through processes of consensus, they create proposals, which they will then carry forth and act on in their lives. And they together begin making a democratic community. You create democracy in that community, a direct democracy, not this farce democracy that we have. Right. And that is the first, one of the first atoms of this, of this new society often. So, but is that the only thing? No, people do community gardens and the community garden as a project brings people together, decentralizes food production, decommodifies food production. Um, free stores are another example. Uh, these are all examples of something called mutual aid, right? Uh, uh, mutual aid is all of these sorts of examples. Everybody coming together using cooperative instinct in order to hold up one another as a species. But there's lots and lots of these examples, an astonishing variety of different kinds of things, kinds of approaches people are doing. Uh, you know, but then there, there's also uh, there's the more sort of like uh, militant uh, uh, aspects where people are like squatting, for example. In Greece, you have Exarchaea, where an entire area of the city has essentially been squatted and defended militantly, and the police have just ceded it to the to the Greek anarchists. It's a, an entire part of the city. Um, and what I would like to see is, of course, that be de more democratized, uh, but that's another matter entirely. Uh, but like there are tons and tons of examples all taking place. There are people who are establishing what are called, um, uh, well, Kropotkin would have called them free cities. They're called intentional communities now. Yeah. Uh, but like uh, intentional communities where people go out and they go, oh, no, this entire community, we're going to build only houses. Everybody here is in a, is in a democratic situation with one another. We, 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 you know, farm our food and distribute it. We are a little self-sufficient economy. So um, I just have to stop because, in fact, the, the variety of experiments is that huge, right? Like, that gotcha, is, yeah. yeah, I could just go on forever. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, like, I guess that makes sense to, like, sort of like lead by example it's like our democracy is obviously like you said a farce you know so it's like um if somebody's gonna do it right it probably should be done on a small scale to like be like we figured it out over here yeah. like happy to open source this uh you know and like you can take it and you know um but yeah i guess uh, i'm not sure what else i was gonna say on that um <laughs> uh, well no worries hey just i'll just keep rambling if you like but <laughs> well um so i have localism written down in my notes here and like mm. um I feel like when you say localism, some people are like, ah, and I know that there are probably a bunch of branches of localism, like there are a ton of branches of anarchism and libertarianism, but is there anything in that zone that's of interest to you or that like serves alignment in alignment with uh, what you're up to? I mean, once again, that's just like, that's a fundamental precept within anarchism is trying to be contextual, is trying to be localistic, is trying to understand you know, um, uh, what, the, what the, the landscape of this area actually is and trying to meet that need. Because part of th uh, the complexity, remember what we discussed about centralization destroying complexity, 
Well, what is the very complexity it's destroying? It's destroying how things vary over these small distances, right? And the smaller the distance, the more that complexity gets washed out. So when anarchism is attempting to restore complexity, then of course, what it's attempting to do is go back and restore all of those places the details were washed out. And of course, the most fundamental place those details are washed out is down on the most the localistic level between small groups of people and then within communities and within local ecologies and within cities and, and so on. So the anarchist is often very focused on this localistic um, approach. And, and this is often an extremely, uh, uh, um, a fundamental component of, of how anarchists approach their problem. I see the big overarching thing here, um, and this is one of the, 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 the foundational principles of anarchism, is that there is what's called means ends unity in anarchism, okay? So, you know, there's this famous saying that the means justify, or the ends justify the means. Well, the anarchist just rejects that uh, out of hand. And that's because what the anarchist brings up is that the ends and the means can't really be disentangled. Right. The means you choose determine the ends you will achieve, right? In this very systems oriented way where it's like, well, you know, if you choose the ways of the enemy, you can't achieve the ends you've set out. So those means just now have to be off the table because certain ends will be unachievable, right? So what the anarchist says is, no, I need, I need means that are consistent with my ends, right? right? And, and I, might, I might add maximally consistent because they can't be perfectly consistent, mm -hmm. right? I can't just uh, go right to communism right now. That's not, that's not possible. Society wouldn't allow it. But, um, you know, trying to figure out what is the vehicle? What is the seed of the tree I want to see grow look like, right? And, and trying to understand that connection between now and then. And therefore, if I want a society of complexity, I have to understand what the local components are of any place, N not only in its, in its community, but it's in its ecology as well. Understanding mm -hmm. what that ecology's actual, you know, content and context is. All that is so important in anarchism. But what I would bring up is that anarchism isn't narrowly localistic. It is, it is based upon a, another principle called solidarity. And solidarity mm -hmm. is, the, is the concept that, you know, essentially we're all in this together, right? It's not just about my self-interest. It's also about the interest of all and understanding that my self-interest is intertwined with the interest of all, right? Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, um, this explains why, as you said, the living example is so much uh, a model for the anarchist. It's, it's about the unity of means and ends. And it also goes back to the critique, of course, of everything that I've said so far. Uh, Criticizing this this hyperstitization, the the authority, it's a, it's a rejection of means ends unity. They don't understand. They think they can just use any means to achieve their ends. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what I would say about about localism. There's of course all kinds of other stuff, but yeah, I'm being told my internet is pooping. Um, am I freezing up for you at all? Nope. You look pretty good. You're like, you just like, I mean, the tiniest bit of roboting for a second, but okay. Yeah. Hopefully this is good now. Um, okay. So with the, the ends and the means thing, um, like, I guess that's, yeah, the whole ends justify the means thing sounds like that when you go down that road, it's like not good things. But uh, so I feel like this whole world of persuasive talk, um, 
like I've heard described as the dark arts. And I'm curious, you know, like that sort of ends justify the means thing. Like to me, that's very much like a dark arts thing of like, don't worry, it'll be great when it's finished. And like, don't worry about what's gonna happen in the meantime. Um, like to what extent is that reasonable to ever have any of that? Like, uh, I feel like your thing is like, it's more of like this like intellectual like thing that you have to like fully take in. But um, uh, what am I trying to say though? With the, the dark arts thing that's like, you know, I feel like they're trying to be like, okay, I'm just gonna cheat a little bit and get to the thing quicker. But in doing that, you're going to create problems. Is there any room for any sort of persuasive dark art like that? Or well, I don't know what you mean by dark art. You're going to have to give me a little more detail. Well, I mean, just like. You're to... saying insofar as using means of coercion or deception or or even just maybe a sort of persuasion where it's it's so it's so forceful that you're you're forcefully changing the way people's minds work and and all of that propaganda, you might say, the creation of propaganda. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how much how different is persuasion from deception? You know, like I feel like they're on a similar spectrum. Um, what, I would say, what I would say is I personally, just insofar as we're talking about my, uh, per, you know, there's kind of two different answers to this question. What is my personal approach and what do I think is within the range of acceptable, you know, things that can be done? Obviously, I'm trying to align the two, but I'm just saying, you know, um, personally, I would say persuasion differs from, you know, deception insofar as that in persuasion, you're not telling them any falsehoods, right? You're not, you're not telling in, gotcha. in deception, you're actually telling them false things, either about the world or themselves or, or something. And I think that's the real issue. You're, you're actually giving them, you're not, you're not telling them how the world actually works. You're just trying to change their minds by, by any means. And what I think is that's endurable. I think that's not really going to last a lot of the time, or if it does last, it will often lead to really bad things. Um, it might also lead to them. And when I say it's endurable, you know, they get into a, a conversation with somebody else and then they, oh, they want to bring up this talking point that you've weaponized inside their head, but it's a lie. And that person knows it's a lie. They're just going to crumble. They're just right. going to crumble. So you built somebody who now does not have a strong understanding of the world. And therefore, as soon as anything goes wrong, they're just going to fall right out of this mentality. So I think that that deception is often endurable. I think it's coercive, probably shouldn't be done. Doesn't, and I don't think it needs to be done is the point I would make. Insofar mm -hmm. as what is the extent of this dark arts? Well, the thing is, is I will say that there's, there's a sort of like component of force that is taking place in any of this propagandizing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I would say propaganda is not bad by itself. Propaganda is based upon the word propagate. Its most primary purpose is propagating an idea, right? It's not that mm -hmm. it's not, and that could be bad, propagating bad ideas, right? But it's also it's propaganda to create something that is purely focused upon propagation in my in my mind, and that's why it's kind of traditionally used as well. And so I would say I create propaganda. That's exactly what I'm doing is trying to create propaganda. I'm trying to propagate ideas in this process, and I don't think it's bad to create propaganda either. So this is kind of, I guess, what you're getting at with this, this dark arts thing. I think it's, it's, in fact, good to make propaganda if it's also uh, true, there's no deceit taking mm -hmm. place, and it is towards outcome, right? So um, in sort of, in, in so far as like making things really quippy or like boiling them down into phrases and words that people are going to be able to, you know, make, making them mimetic, for example, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, I think that stuff all has a great deal of value. And I should also say that um, I think that the usage of coercive force is justified insofar as that if we have built that replacement, so if we've got that dual power, 
that's there and it's like developed and it's starting to build like these real networks and it's starting to build confederations and all that. I would consider an act of self-defense for them to overthrow this hyper-centralized authority. Therefore, I support revolution. Therefore, of course, I support the usage of, of coercive force under those circumstances. But I also don't think that all coercive force is bad. It's not that it's it's not that it's force that makes it bad. Once again, when I defend myself from trying somebody trying to murder me, I use force, right? Mm-hmm. And I might I might even say that I'm coercing them to do so, right? <laughs> like if I if I'm like you know fighting them or holding them against the ground, that's coercion, uh, and it's not bad therefore mm-hmm. to use coercive force in all occasions. It's instead to say that what is bad is establishing institutions of hierarchicalized power. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not about me defending myself uh, from force. It's about establishing a permanent situation wherein this layer of people has institutional power over this layer of people. That's the mm-hmm. real issue. Um, so I would say, you know, insofar as we're about like the dark arts in that way, I guess like probably what people might consider, quote unquote, things that are bad means. I think we really do need to think about in a little more of a, of a holistic sense about what is actually bad. For example, trying to understand the difference between aggression and self-defense, but on a social level, right? right? I think this is part of the argument I've made to people before is they are like, well, revolution is just like this inherently, you know, aggressive, oppressive act. And it's like, no, no more than a slave escaping a plantation is an aggressive or oppressive act or, or a slave breaking their own chains or having to, to kill their own master to escape or whatever. I would be, I would support the slave. I would support the slave personally, right? Mm-hmm. So, and why? Because the slave is under oppression. We clearly see this as an act of self-defense. They're just trying to free themselves from a, from a situation of, of, a, of, of a oppressive authority. And so therefore, I don't think revolution is anything other than self-defense. It's, it's us trying to get out from under this, this horror, this suffocating, stifling uh, authoritarianism. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I guess that's a really long answer to a, to a I mean, relatively <laughs> yeah, I mean, simple question. With like the whole dark arts thing, I mean, uh, like I... I guess like there's plenty of dark arts going on in American government right now anyway. So like, you know, just cause it's Joe Biden doesn't mean it's not dark arts, but um, uh, so, so I, I should mention by the way that I feel like, you know, I know your general stances on like scientific skepticism and uh, your like uh, metaphysics and praxis and all. Um, and I would say that I have generally been aligned with you, but like, my credences in a lot of things have become a lot more abstract and hyper skeptical. So like, I feel like in general, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> like, I don't believe that anything exists. Like I'm sort of more hyper nihilistic like that. You're um, a big S skeptic. You're not a scientific skeptic anymore. You're just, a, you're an old style Peronian skeptic is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm, I, I guess, uh, what's the Peronian <laughs> skeptic? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, we can talk about that. I, I mean, I find that all very interesting. Um, I still, I still abide by the scientific skeptic line because I think that um, uh, uh, and trustworthy knowledge and knowledge which we can rely on is best found through a scientific epistemology. And when I'm trying yeah, to sort, when I'm trying to sort what is true from what is false, then I am not assuming everything is true and then disproving it. I'm assuming everything is not true before it is proven. So therefore, when I come to a question, you know, is reality here? It's like, well, 
all evidence suggests yes. So my assumption is yes. Now, give me some disproofs and I'll consider otherwise, but I don't feel like I'm uh, obligated to consider anything that hasn't demonstrated a scrap of evidence. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Like, and that includes all of these possible metaphysical claims, uh, you know, not only like uh, an evil God in like Descartes' conception, who's, who's altering our minds or brain in a jar or whatever, but also like the universe is a hologram sort of stuff, right? Like prove it, you know, like, I'm not saying that it's wrong. It's not like, it's false until you give me the evidence. And right now evidence says not, right? So, right. so then I step, I'm going to stay on not until evidence says otherwise. It's just, for me, it's that simple. I, I go where uh, substantiation leads me and my belief is accorded to my level of, of substantiation. So mm -hmm. this is why I'm not a big S skeptic, right? Uh, because a big S skeptic would require for me to start jettisoning the, that, that, uh, mentality. I'd have to start then going, oh, well, none of this is evidence. I, I'd have to start cutting off this juncture between the uh, between belief and substantiation. I'd have to start believing there couldn't be good substantiation or the substantiation was somehow meaningless. Um, and uh, that's the reason why I'm not uh, the big S skeptic. Well, I guess like, so my whole thing is like, you know, I'm like a musician, an artist or whatever. And I, I honestly don't have the bandwidth to like have legitimate scientific like heavy duty epistemology like i i'm all into name dropping bays and all but like uh like i i can't really spend that much time knowing the precise truth and so like i've sort of like taken a load off my shoulder by being like you know whatever like it's fucking the world man like we can be a little bit like you know sloppy and wishy-washy about it but i know that there's always like this like world of scientific stuff to defer to but i'm not gonna try to chip away at that thing myself because I don't have the means to necessarily. Um, but um, I'm sort of curious if there's like, like I, I don't know if you know like Connor Habib, um, but like he's like somebody putting forth like these ideas of like occult leftism. And I'm curious if there's something that's like a less intellectual branch that you think has any sort of potency or potential to it. So explain what you mean by cult leftism. Oh, sorry, occult. Occult leftism. I mean, there's some people that, that have that perspective. Yeah. Um, I mean, it should, have said, it should be said that it's, some has already been developed, uh, but I am not personally interested in it. I'm certainly not reading any of it myself. Uh, as I understand it, this is uh, something kind of like Nick Land goes more into, but I would not want to recommend people go read Nick Land because sometimes he's very reactionary uh, and definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't like uh, uh, support all of his politics. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that being said, yes, there is some of this taking place. Some people are definitely taking that approach. Um, it should be said that in the, in the in the modern era, we're seeing a resurgence of like Gnosticism, right, mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that, which is, of course, having some overlap with with leftism in general, but even more more specifically with anarchism. Uh, if you think about what the sorts of things I've said about anarchism, you can see how a lot of them are going to also, if you just take them up as tools and then just start applying them to things like epistemology, theology, metaphysics, you'll start to get some very uh, occult sounding conclusions, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you'll start getting things where it's like, you know, uh, you start asking questions about what is the actual, what, how is knowledge built and what is, what it, you know, what is information and, and uh, can any belief really be substantiated? What is substantiation or what is valuable substantiation? And uh, those are all interesting conversations, but I also feel like sometimes people will, will miss the point 
um, on on uh, uh, the the topics that that we can act, like the topics where we can actually come to solid conclusions about the answers and the topics where sometimes what they're actually just doing is going, yeah, but what if weird thing? It's like, yeah, but, but what if, what if, what if um, alternative explanation, this mm -hmm. thing? And it's like, well, yeah, but I'm, you know, as a scientific skeptic, I'm just like, evidence, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I always have this very similar approach. Um, but for me, I've, I've chosen a general degree not to really get too bogged down in uh, metaphysics, theology, uh, or, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, as a general topics of conversation, uh, because just really people have weird biases that they don't want to inspect, that they don't want to discuss, and that often will just break up coalitions that would function just fine if we had never had any of these arguments, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't discuss those things generally because I don't want to get into a situation where we're breaking up useful coalitions. But insofar as uh, what how I feel about it, I don't believe in anything supernatural. The <laughs> occult anything I don't think is real. You know, like it's like it it's like it might be a body of not or a body of knowledge and study, but it's not real insofar as how it talks about the world, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm realizing we're we're in an hour, and I assume that you don't really have a time limit, but uh, we can no, cut, no. We're cut good. this right now. <laughs> We can go for a while. I'm good. It'd be a great moment to just cut the podcast right there. Yeah, um, right there, and that's it. That's it. Well, We're done. So uh, again, I totally agree. Like, I'm. I don't believe that uh, you know there are like spooky gods hanging out or whatever. But um, so like, I feel like nearby this esoteric occult world is like the creative art world, and um, I guess I'm sort of curious where artists and like without like I feel like whenever people talk about art and politics it gets so gross and cliche so quickly and um like I feel like there's some sort of hopefully there's some sort of uh, innate skill that those types of people can contribute because like I feel like my skill set is so much different from yours where you know you have physics you have political theory and stuff and I'm just like I like fucking like chords man like uh so I, I heard somebody say something about how oscillatory synchrony is so cheap or something like you know you can like get a huge amount of synchrony out of just oscillatory effects mm -hmm. and as a musician that's what I deal with so like um how can musicians and creatives contribute to something that's like a positive emergent movement like that you know I mean what I would say is that that musicians are involved in the cultural component right um, I think one of the things that I've been really taking into consideration lately is the the deep need of uh, of uh, you know we 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 typically are like you know we we look at like they're kind of like these two two groups that we think are really important in politics like the theoreticians the people who make the theory and then the 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 act the activists or whatever the organizers and that, there you go that's it. And it's like, no, there's also this vast cultural component <laughs> that is that is mixed up in this whole process. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, getting the ideas into the public consciousness is obviously one good thing that people can do. I think that insofar that, that like, for example, musicians just creating spaces for the ideas to be spread, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, I mean, just in so far as like a practical example, but you know, this is obviously not exhaustive of the, the possible things you could do. It's just like, 
letting an anarchist table and have like pamphlets and stuff at the show that's being done. Or, you know, for example, you're kind of doing a praxis right now. You know, you're having me on your podcast, right? Like now <laughs> I'm going to, I'm here spreading some anarchist ideas, right? Mm-hmm. But like, this is, I would say, you know, more broadly getting these basic ideas, the foundational precepts of what anarchism represents into um, the art that is being disseminated into society is obviously a good thing, obviously a, a powerful component in the whole process. And, and the usage of art in order to create community spaces, in order to repair atomization, to recreate the social, the social aspect of humanity, to rekindle you know, mutuality and solidarity and all of that, I think it's highly valuable. Might I also add that just at a truly fundamental level, I think that it, creativity as an impulse and I mean this just like way down at the root, like the, 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 the con, you know, we have the construction and deconstruction, the, you know, creation and, and destruction, you know, both of these impulses are important, but the creative impulse is truly one of the most important parts of this whole project. Mm-hmm. And art is a pure representation of the creative impulse. It is, it is the creative impulse freed. It's almost like we found all of the places where only it's like, this is where only pure creation takes place or the most pure creation where the least amount of destruction is mixed in. You know, like I think about a lot of art like that where, and it's almost like it is the optimization of, of this, this payoff of creation and destruction. It's where construct can creation is, is hyper-maximized and destruction is, is very minimized. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so I, I don't know, I think it's a natural, I think it's a, it's the sort of thing that anarchists just value insofar as the sort of society we would want to create as a society where creativity and art are flourishing, where this mm-hmm. impulse is the one that society is built to fulfill, not the destructive impulse, not the impulse of domination or hierarchy, but instead one where the, 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 all of those, uh, uh, the, the organic social product of the people is freed from domination. That's so, so insofar as my view on it, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I feel. Uh, I'll, I'll be talking a little bit about that creativity and destruction uh, uh, component in, in the upcoming video. Um, oh yeah, so I guess like in my music, one of the things that I've been trying to disseminate is like roughly like animal rights-ish type stuff or like animal welfare type stuff. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, I can't fucking have another layer of like shit that I'm like trying to put out there. Like, and so, I mean, like, I feel like I can't take on the duty of spreading a political message in addition to my own sort of like nearby messages. Um, so is there anything more like, uh, I guess like anything a little bit more subtle or abstract that the creative individual can do besides like nurturing their own creative impulse and sort of like setting that example of being generative? I mean, obviously, that's that. I would say is we're pretty we're pretty abstract at that point. At, uh, but I will say, um, insofar as that the thing that I think a lot of artists can do, it's to reclaim your alienated power, and that is to say, to use to use means ends unity. Insofar as that you're distributing your art, insofar as that you are being you are producing music or publishing books or whatever it is. Um, do so through those publishers, which are essentially cooperatives or create cooperatives together such that don't, don't create businesses that are corporations, create worker self-directed enterprises, right? Like create 
cooperative structures such that what you build in the process of disseminating your art is a transformative thing, right? Like now you've built something that itself is a form of dual power and could be involved in a broader project. And then the art, whatever, make the art as you like. Make it as you please, whatever, whatever message you like. I mean, obviously you don't want to do messages that are contrary to the, to these needs, but like, you know, in so build the dual power structure that distributes that stuff, you know, d disseminate power, distribute social power, you know, get rid of monopoly where you find it. Oh, there's a bottleneck here. Get rid of the bottleneck and the holding of power. Um, these are all, those, these are valuable things that artists can do. And there's, there is work being done on this front by people right now. Uh, there are starting to be now uh, platforms that are cooperative platforms that are being developed that are owned by the artists that publish their stuff through it. Um, I think these are these are really good ways in order to uh, in order to approach you know building that dual power, doing something actual praxis while being an artist. Mm -hmm. um, so one of these sort of like similar strands of thought that I feel aligned with is like the cypherpunk movement, which I feel like is very anarchist in nature, but it's just like armed with cryptography. Um, is there any sort of realm of that like cryptographically, uh, you know? Uh, like armed sort of world, like uh, not necessarily even just cryptocurrency, but like, um, you know, encryption practices or like, uh, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in a general sense, I think <clears throat> some amount of cryptography would be good to have. Um, it's interesting because there's the I would say I understand the impulses to want to make everybody's votes completely anonymous through, mm -hmm. through a bunch of these systems, but also part of democracy and part of building consensus is that you know who voted which way and so that you can actually have dialogue with those people. If mm -hmm. we anonymize everything, there's no dialogue. Everybody becomes more and more siloed off. And nobody is, and not only is nobody accountable for anything that they, they, they vote on, right? But we also just don't even have a, a, a way for these nodes to have feedback with one another. And it seems to me it redu that reduces complexity in a way. It, it increases safety, but it increases safety in a way where you're just insulated from consequences for anything you've done, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me what I'm trying to do is recreate sociality. So I'm kind of wanting to go in the opposite direction in a way, insofar as that I want voting to be face-to-face. -face. I want people to actually have to talk with each other when they make a decision. If you're going to make some terrible decision about how to treat somebody next to you, shouldn't you have to confront them? You know, mm -hmm. shouldn't, you, shouldn't they have to know that it's you, that they live next to you, and that you chose to subjugate them? You know, like these things are important. And I think these are, this is, it's actually, in many ways, I would like to go the opposite direction in that capacity. Now, that being said, does that mean that there's like no value to cryptography or no value to blockchain technologies or whatever people want to use? No, I'm not saying that. They might be able to be repurposed for certain very useful things. For example, I mean, we're not in our, our post-revolutionary society at this point, okay? We, we need ways to communicate without being, without being tracked by, by author, you know, structures of authority. We need uh, ways in order to distribute money, which, can, which are not trackable. Um, all of that stuff is gonna be very useful. You know? We'll need, we'll need uh, cryptography for all of that. And is that to say there's also zero value? 
in in such a in such a usage of like cryptographic voting or whatever no maybe maybe there's certain circumstances where that would be a good way to do it and maybe even it might be said you could mix anonymization with discourse by having it to where the identity of the person who made the vote in real life is not necessarily open, but the person is a node that can be communicated with, where mm -hmm. still everybody could send them angry messages, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Like, um, it would, there would be some feedback because they just like, well, nobody knows what username A3520, you know, like so and so, so is. But uh, that is a place they can send their angry messages, and that user will see the angry message, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it so, sounds like you're interested in like radical transparency, but that could be done through the means of cryptographic means <laughs> maybe i'm open i'm open to clever solutions to things right i think mm -hmm. i think there's a tendency when people hear something unfamiliar to be afraid to some degree because they don't know what to expect from it um anarchists as much as anybody else they kind of would hear about a technology like that and be like oh man it's techno bro solutions to problems you know and it's like no i mean I don't see any reason why we shouldn't utilize available technologies if they're useful, but I also think that they, it needs to come along with the radical critique of what what could be what could go wrong with them in process, right? Um, that's kind of my 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 only worry about full mm -hmm. anonymization of the voting process. You might actually are only make they're making decisions that if they had to deal with repercussions, they would not do so. And of course, the flip side, actually, the flip side is like, oh, but then there might be threats and, you know, people might try to coerce you knowing who you are into voting in some way. And then afterwards, they're going to know if you did vote this certain way. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, there's some truth to that. But, you know, as I said, there's the mirror of that that now you can yourself with your vote coerce other people and there's no way for them to do anything about it, right? So uh, it has its ups and downs and uh, I'd always be interested in hearing people do good analysis of the two, but it seems to me that the drive towards full anonymization is a, is an, is a desire to reproduce the, um, the uh, uh, complete lack of accountability that's seen within mm -hmm. a liberal republic, what we already have right? Mm -hmm. Where we already try to anonymize out everybody's votes, where nobody knows how anybody voted, because we right. all just like want a civil society where the people doing the subjugating get along with the people who are being subjugated. And it's like, I don't see any reason why the people who are being subjugated should have to get along with the people who are subjugating them, you know, like the people who are doing the subjugating should be able to be held accountable. There should be repercussions for doing terrible things to other people. That's part right. of how society functions, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's a complex topic. It's definitely mm -hmm. not one that I would give just a blanket answer about, right? Just right. kind of present my, my feelings about worries that I might have the, the direction I would like to go instead, you know? Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned like somebody just having like, we are attempting to, um, uh, get rid of situations where certain people have control of the total social flow of power, right? So there's like, you might imagine that like power originates from below, right? Or power comes from the uh, us utilizing the ecology. It comes from us being able to achieve our ends, essentially. And 
what the anarchist wants is for everybody together to have a cooperative control over that total social, social flow of power. Not just for the people that stand at some juncture of like deservedness, like they're, they're, they're like we get rid of this concept of just because you're the gatekeeper, you deserve to be able to extract a toll kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and instead we start to understand that all of society is fundamentally reliant on all other parts of society. You know, that, that there is no way for us to talk about an individual owning a thing when that thing was produced by so much, by so this massive web of, of interconnections, which can never truly be obscured out of the process. They can only be ignored, right? And I think that's kind of what it, what it really comes down to. Um, I would say, uh, let, me, let me see if I can find this Kropotkin quote real quick. What is he, that's... It, it's interesting. Um, yeah, here we go. Millions of human beings have labored to create this civilization on which we pride ourselves today. Other millions scattered through the globe labor to maintain it. Without them, nothing would be left in 50 years but ruins. There is not even a thought or an invention which is not common property born of the past and the present. Thousands of inventors, known and unknown, who have died in poverty, have cooperated in the invention of each of these machines which embody the genius of man. Science and industry, knowledge and application, discovery and the practical realization leading to new discoveries, cunning of brain and of hand, toil of mind and muscle, all work together. Each discovery, each advance, each increase in the sum of human riches owes its being to the physical and mental travail of the past and the present. So I guess like, you know, you mentioned like the interconnected web of everything. And um, in my mind, I'm just thinking of that as like some sort of like, like, I guess I'm visualizing it like a, an oscilloscope or something like that. And so it's like, how do we make this into a beautiful geometry? And I heard somebody talking about, um, what's it like the Dunbar number? Um, uh, they were talking about like, if we had like a crazy high Dunbar number, um, how to get it to like a, a scale of that nature with quote, the right geometry. And so like this idea of like the right geometry or sort of like the harmonic quality of it is like how I can't help but thinking of it as. So like, what is the right geometry for the sort of final situation that you imagine here? Just increasing the Dunbar number. That's I think that's I think that's a tall order. I, I, I think that probably there's some amount of of social construction that can be done, some amount of the reconstruction of infrastructure and where people are literally located in in uh, in proximity to one another and the sorts of people they come in contact with in a variety of different ways. I think you could probably bump that number up. But I think that there's probably also some fundamental limit, like limits to human cognition that make to where that number is not going to go to, you know, it's going to have a limit, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, if for me, I'm not even certain that the solution is to create a Dunbar number the size of humanity, because I don't mm -hmm. know that's literally possible. We're not like demigods, right? Well, I mean, forget that I mentioned Dunbar, just uh, <laughs> in a, in a sort of like beautiful society of your envisioning. Um, is there any sort of like... Uh, I mean, just to like put it in more like wishy-washy creative terms, like is there any sort of like harmonic or geometric or textural quality to it that you could like reduce to some sort of, uh, you know, quality like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think self-organized criticality or emergence is essentially what what's being discussed right there, right? You know, mm -hmm. when we're talking about, you know, this sort of like harmonic where, like you said, you have these oscillations and the oscillations, if all you do is just change their staggering a little bit, you get like crazy, like constructive interference. And it's like mm -hmm. double, you know, what either of their, their, either of them would have been by themselves. And you get, you get these like, you know, these, this can definitely happen in a social sense. And I guess what I'm really saying is my understanding is how you're going to get to that harmonic quality is through this creation of, uh, of these, these dynamics that I've described, reducing the monopoly on the social flow of power, uh, uh, getting rid of all this, this infinite degree of thresholds that takes mm. place where every single person reduces the amount of information that's taking place in the situation. Instead, creating a more, more direct distributions, creating decentral coordination and, and try, allowing the actual agents in the system to, to, to be able to shift and move and, and, and adapt to their circumstances. If you don't have that, you can't have harmonization. You can't have, you can't have emergence. You can't have self-organized criticality. All you get is, is, a, is, a, is a machine life. And so I guess, I guess what I would say is anarchism is that harmonic, right? Anarchism is the desire to discover that harmonic in humanity. And um, that's, that's all uh, to a significant degree, the way I've come to think of it, you know? Yeah, I guess like in my mind, I'm just like, how can we put this in terms of like a tuning problem? Like, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever done like a like a biofeedback thing or like a neurofeedback. Have you ever tried any of that? No. Um, it's interesting because like, you know, you can put like a little sensor on and it will like tell you kind of like how sympathetic or parasympathetic you are. And having just that simple feedback of like, okay, I need to like make this thing turn from red to green um, by changing my mood. I'm wondering if there's some sort of way that that could happen on a more societal level where it's like, it's not necessarily that we have any sense of what we're doing to get to the correct place, but we have some sort of feedback that is telling us like, this is how resonant we are. Um, and if everybody sort of like, just sees that like, oh shit, it's on red today. Like, like you know, I know I'm taking some small part in that. How can I make it go to green? Um, I, I just feel like in some ways, like the intellectual thing is a barrier. And if there's like a felt, path there then like that might be like easier to get more people sort of uh organized or like i don't know um i i feel like i'm like just going down esoteric territory no i mean I, I get what you're saying it's like the kind of thing that's obviously would be ideal if it can be carried out i think <laughs> it's probably the problem is that is the development of, of such technology that could do that could do the process we're looking for certainly not impossible i don't think but it's uh, going to be a, a challenge and i'd be interested to see anybody who could pull off such a challenge but i think the dynamic that would be that would be at play here is the dynamic of uh, of trust trust and secrecy this play this this interplay between us trusting others uh, or us believing that others are kind of like out to get us. And, and it's kind of based around this, uh, uh, the interplay of mutuality and, and competition, right? If you mm -hmm. believe that it's like a dog eat dog world, you believe that everybody's in competition with one another, you're going to have a tendency to reproduce that in your life. You're going to have a tendency sure. to, to carry out this dog eat dog mentality and to treat others that way, then they're going to start to feel that way. And it, and it, you know, ripples out. Right. So obviously the dynamics are real and they do have an effect. If one could develop some, you know, uh, uh, app 
or whatever <laughs> that would give people feedback that would help them be aware of a broader uh, a social milieu of, of trust and, and all of that. Yeah, could be valuable, could help people. I mean, um, I think some people are trying to like, I mean, I think the economists would want us to think that GDP is that like uh, biofeedback oh or something like but um, like I, I, there's oh. got to be a better method of doing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sad to say that I think that that, that delusion is that, like that, that belief you're saying about their delusion might unfortunately be correct. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with the GDP. I think it definitely has something to do with a lot more with, with very, very fundamental human emotions, you know, um, mm-hmm. the actual uh, content of, of what our uh, species heritage, heritage is, which is, which is more this cooperative instinct. It is more this mutuality. It is the storage and, and uh, uh, reliance of, of information. And that's really what we're trying to, to improve. We're trying to, trying to bring complexity back to humanity, uh, trying to fight back against the, the mechanization of human beings. What about like um, some sort of method where like, instead of sort of like creating a system where the end result is sort of a higher quality of life or like a, a more positive valence to things. What if you distribute more positive valence before you figure out the system that would yield that as in like, uh, let's say some technology comes around that like raises everybody's hedonic set point significantly. Um, I mean, and this sounds like it would be some sort of pharmacology, but, uh, you know, like, uh, is there any sort of uh, version of that in your world or um, any sort of version of that that you disagree with in a nearby world? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some uh, some pitfalls to to that approach. At first, I was thinking about I was like, OK, I mean, you know, that's that's an interesting thing. But then I kind of started to think through um, uh, problems. One of the problems is that if all you try to do is increase whatever this, you know, you, you derive a metric. And the metric is, for example, let's say quality of life. Mm-hmm. But then that, that metric just becomes what you're focused on. Well, the problem is you're probably going to reduce out all of the detail that isn't that metric, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, quality of life is what we choose. So then does that mean like in this immediate term sense, I just want to increase quality of life? Then I just want to demand reforms. Oh, well, then social democracy is what I actually want. I'm just going to go vote for people and then we're all going to vote really good. We're going to reduce the amount of suffering. We're going to raise the minimum wage. But the problem is, is what if that means can never get to the other ends? What if the ends actually require you to suffer a little bit in the meantime? You know, what if, what if the, what if the aspect, what if there's going to be some self-sacrifice involved in creating that better world and it's going to require a transition, a bridge of, of challenge in between, right? Where, where mm-hmm. things are not gonna, it's not just gonna be that everything just goes 100% in that direction, that there's gonna be sacrifices. And um, so I, it's not to say that you're, you're like, that idea is like categorically wrong. It's just to say mm-hmm. that I, I could see it falling into, into such, a, such a, uh, a path of argumentation, I guess you'd right. say. I feel like somebody like David Lynch, uh, when he's sort of getting uh, woo-woo about his transcendental meditation stuff, it's like, there's some quote where it's like, if 1% of the population could achieve transcendence through this meditation, then like, there will be world peace or something. And where it's like, he's, I feel like he's saying like, the point of criticality is getting this many people to know how to get to bliss and then it will spread. Um, And so like, uh, I mean, that definitely sounds like, implausible but uh that's like uh it's like a buddhist vanguardism or something 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, with, like, with the whole crypto world, I'm just like wondering if there's a way to incentivize getting to states of transcendence and bliss, uh, like algorithmically. Yeah, I think I think the problem is that if it takes place inside of this system, it's going to be fundamentally um, uh, embedded within what can provide that state of bliss within this society. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's kind of limited to, to whatever the conditions of society are, because it, it help holds it, it. That bliss is in relation to the society that you were within, right? So, mm-hmm. of course, somebody who's like transcendental is going to say, "Well, no. In fact, part of what what the transcendental process is is escaping what this society has told you is necessary, and you discover that really quick." And they would obviously be correct in that process. But the problem is, is that if we didn't have this transcendental mindset and all we were trying to do is just create the state of bliss, you know, this could justify, for example, us escaping into simulations, whereas off in the distance, you know, the simulations are being powered by, you know, the deaths of people in other countries. And, you know, all we, we've maximized our bliss. We've made, mm-hmm. I'm doing good, buddy. I mean, I'm sorry about all that imperialism over there and extractivism, destroying your environment and your people. But I maximized bliss. Okay, I'm I, I've maximized. So we're good now. One percent of, of bliss holders. I've got all the all the bliss over here. Soon enough, you guys will get some bliss, right? Like, I mean, it's like, mm, mm. I don't think that's I don't think it's necessarily how it works. I think that the ideas have to have some conception of what it is that they they demand of a new society. Right? They have to have revolutionary demands. The, the, the actual fundamental structure of society be rebuilt such that it produces a better life. Understanding what it is that brings them misery and seeking to get rid of the actual structures that bring the misery, as opposed to their incidental misery. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you, you say structures that bring misery. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, you've mentioned some stuff about like anti-work stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that. Like I forget, um, who's the dude that wrote that essay about um, like the anti-work revolution? The one you had mentioned to me, I think was Bob Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know anything about him, but uh, I'm curious about what that sort of looks like in your mind, uh, that general realm. So I haven't read a whole lot of anti-work literature. I just kind of know what the general perspective of the uh, anti-work is. And it should be said that largely what is being discussed here is um, people are talking about the uh, end of coerced labor, Mm -hmm. right? That's really what the discussion is about. And it kind of roots all the way back to the roots of leftist thought, which is that this coerced labor, wage labor in the modern era, slave er- uh, you know, labor in, in, in uh, previous eras, uh, serf labor at, at throughout the, you know, a whole era of monarchy. Um, this, these, were, these are all uh, miserable forms of life. These are all miserable forms. Your, your actual labors as a person, your creative capacities are being, are being, are being, um, taken from you. And then they're being reoriented to serve the needs of someone who is actually your subjugator, somebody who actually has all the power over you. And, and, and so not only is the, are they your subjugator by use of other people's violence upon you? They get to use your labor to perpetuate their subjugation over you. So it's a miserable circumstance under in, under any circumstances. So what is the anti-work position? The anti-work position is the is the abolition of this coerced form of labor, right? 
So, you know, you might get a bunch of people making this argument. I'll say insofar as Bob Black, um, as a person, from what I'm, uh, what I gather, kind of a questionable guy, has some questionable positions. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, but he's not the only one who writes about it. Once, as I said, it kind of, it has a through line all the way back to the beginning. But what you'll find is the reason why that this literature even has to be written is because there was a fetishization of the, of, of work. Uh, as per the working working class having this this extremely strong work ethic because it had been disciplined into working right so right. it's like what is its strength it produces everything so it's not bad that they work they should be proud of the fact that they are disciplined workers and they should use that power in order to bring forward a new society that all make that makes sense in a, in a, in an abstract sense right. But when you start to understand what that's saying, it is to say, I'm going to free myself by continuing the very cycle of coerced labor, which gives me misery. I'm yeah. going to create a society on the back and the necessity of the very coerced labor I'm trying to escape. So the anti-work position is actually, no, we're trying to, we're trying to dismantle the system. We're trying to decrease the, the amount of coerced labor and try to increase the amount of, of freely willed or internally uh, motivated uh, uh, creative uh, labor that we do. And, uh, and I can see that perspective. Um, and and I, I get the arguments. In a general sense, I, just, I, just, uh, I, I agree with the arguments as they stand. Um, the question, of course, comes back to something we kind of discussed, which is to what degree must there be self-sacrifice? To what degree must there be, mm -hmm. must there be suffering as the bridge to, to a greater success? Um, I think that that's a crucial question that has to be asked. And um, once again, it also feeds in with means and unity and how, how closely can we actually get them matched, you know? Uh, that's that's all these it, these are all big complex topics that are all connected with one another you know mm -hmm. i mean it's, it's such a complex thing uh, don't you feel like there's some level i don't want to say hopelessness but like the idea of like a bunch of people like i feel like you know i i'm like over here just being like <laughs> artsy fartsy guy like trying to like talk about politics with politics guy and uh you know i feel like i'm a smart dude and like i'm just like Whoa. Like this is a big, a big world of uh, stuff to, uh, you know, internalize. Uh, so I mean, like, uh, do, do you just yeah, really I mean, do you depend on everybody being uh, sort of well-intentioned and intelligent? <laughs> no, no. I think I think that you know, my I, for me, a lot of this project, I am taking on the role of an artist, which is to say, I am producing the work that I think it comes naturally comes from my creative urges. My creative mm -hmm. urges is to produce this deep level of theory, to analyze and inspect philosophy at a deep level um, and, and uh, to produce it in such a way that other people might want to listen uh, to that topic. Do I think that everybody needs to grasp it at the scale that I am discussing and understand all of these, these fields of study and understand all of the, no, I think part of the perp, what part of, if there is any, you know, praxis to developing this theory and to developing all of these ideas, it is that we then can hand them over to new people and those people can have them in mind and then apply them in one way or another. So I, my ideas are meant to persuade those who want to listen for the most part, because probably mm -hmm. you're not going to engage with the level of theory that I'm writing on, on my channel, unless you're interested in these topics. Right. So I'm just going to keep developing it at that level. But I'm also 
endeavoring in other places to develop in, you know, a way that's a, a layer down and a layer down and a mm -hmm. layer down and all the way down the layers until we're talking about quippy little sayings, you know, like mm -hmm. three word slogans and stuff, you know, all of that has to be there. And, and not only because each of those might be the place that a person is and the, and the kind of knowledge that they need in order to, for, to get the really get their head around it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but also because it's kind of like a ladder, you know, oh, you start down here. Oh, <clears throat> there's this little layer just up from that. Okay. That's easy because it reminds me of this one a little bit, but a little more depth, a little more depth, a little more. Oh, and some people might want to skip three layers up. Some people might want to go, oh, I got the first ideas. I'm ready to read Das Kapital by Marx. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. But like having all of it there allows people to engage at the level they're interested in. And my channel was realizing no one like on YouTube is engaging at the level, at the very top level, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the top level where it's like, oh, okay. We're just going to talk about the ideas as they are, as they exist within the literature. I'm going to try not to cut out any more detail that's necessary. I'm going to talk about it at the level that I think gives due credence to each of the ideas and their and their uh, the people who they came from. I'm not going to deceive or oversimplify and so on. But I think that people have to do it at every single scale. You, of course, came in with, like with pure with you know just being like, okay, let's just ask the the, the biggest, hardest questions that are like the most overarching. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just going to let Daniel ramble for 20 minutes on every single thing I ask. And like, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe not the greatest place for somebody to start on these topics. In fact, when I was thinking about this, I was like, I have never had this detail of discussion on any other podcast I've gone on. And then I realized just because this is what, you, you know, your questions, you chose, you chose these questions, complex systems analysis. What are you doing, John? That's not, it's not podcast material. Yeah, it's funny, like uh, for anybody listening, if they're still listening at this point, um, uh, you know, like Daniel and I, when we talk, uh, like, you know, when we see each other, which is every like year-ish maybe, but uh, I feel like it's usually like a super tunnel vision conversation, kind of at the expense of everybody else that we're with. And then like somebody will come in and be like, oh, do you want like a beer? And then we're just like. <laughs> beer. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, right. Yes. Uh, we're at a like party. Oh, yeah. I interrupted forgot. Okay, in the middle um, of something yeah. private or yeah. something. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to resume with these crazy conversations. Um, yeah, no, definitely. I kind of throw you for a different loop by bringing in occult references and stuff <laughs> yeah well no i i enjoy the i enjoy this conversation the truth is is this is this like feels very much like the conversations i had in a physics major you know what i'm saying or like a, like when i was doing like lots of philosophy class it kind of reminds me of a more academic discussion but it's not one that i get to have very often because most people don't really you know they're not engaging at that at that that layer of depth you know and mm -hmm. uh so yeah i mean you 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 this is uh this is the really ridiculously complex level of it and i haven't even gone into all the philosophical foundations and the history and all that stuff and yeah but these are this is a, this is a description of my approach a systems approach to anarchism you might say um i'm curious uh i know that you know you do like uh sci-fi writing and stuff uh and i know that you're working on a philosophy book yeah 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 um do you want to share any details about that um or is that still, uh, <laughs> what have you done what are you doing oh you, you were like daniel we've gone too in depth i just tell me about all of those philosophical underpinnings now okay 
but um yeah no i write i write fiction uh and i've been writing fiction since i was like 15 so uh it's been like 20 years of practice and i'm pretty good at it uh in fact before i started doing political theory the only thing any of anybody who knew me knew me for was was for art uh was for creating fiction and, and world building you know i love uh creating fictional worlds and thinking about you know all of those and writing stories within them and all of that but um yeah, no, I wrote a, I wrote a science fiction book. I, I tried to get it published for a little while, but then I ran out of steam. I could probably go back and try to start getting an agent again. Um, but I'm also writing a philosophy book and the philosophy book might be seen as sort of um, the, you know, the structure I'm kind of telling way up here at this meta level, it's like builds that starting from like, what is knowledge? Mm. You know, like what is being? You know, what is the, what, what gives something the status of being and what gives it its qualities and then building up into, you know, epistemology and then building up from there into, into what ethics is and then building up in, into, 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 you know, uh, uh, a meaning, what, what a theory of meaning as well. And then building into uh, eventually up into the full political structure. But this time, instead of expressed in the uh, broader philosophical terms that I use on the channel, it's described within the philosophical terminology that is developed in the, the philosophy I'm developing. Gotcha. Um, and that philosophy is a process ontology, like uh, getting really crunchy in the names at this point. But a process ontology is essentially the belief that a thing has uh, its state of being based upon how it functions as a process. Okay. So it's process and how it continues and changes over time, like a, like a feedback loop, uh, is what determines what, what kind of thing it is. But mine also has some component that things have these uh, sort of essential identities. So it's a process ontology that still has some concept of identity mixed in with it. The things have an identity in and of themselves, but they are also the things defined through their process and relation to other things yeah i mean uh i i don't even know who the heck the audience for that is once again like i said i have like it's very much like the artist's approach where it's like who's the audience oh, i'm not creating it for them necessarily i'm just creating it because it seems like the thing i want to create you know like it's like it's what's coming out of me you know mm -hmm. uh and being an artist trained me to uh learn how to uh funnel that which just organically arrives from me and from my desires it had taught me how to funnel that into a work into a thing which was a representation of of those desires those creative desires and um what you learn as an artist is that in order to facilitate that that process properly you have to almost like be fearless you know like you have to you it's not about creating necessarily what somebody else is going to want it's about creating what comes out of you Right. right. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, once again, I guess that's the idea of how I've written this philosophy book, because I don't know who the hell is going to read a philosophy book that wants to start you. That is like, let me introduce you to anarchism. And then it starts you at ontology. What is mm -hmm. wrong with you? That is. <laughs> but like that's a it's to me, it's like a, it's a work insofar as that I kind of want it to be almost like a, like an anarchist Bible. You know, like this is going, this is a holistic worldview. 
This doesn't only tell you how to approach politics. This doesn't only tell you about how to reorganize society. This will give you an understanding of the world and how your political belief is embedded within a broader philosophical dialogue and what that means for the rest of the world. And so in a way, it's almost like the book that if somebody were trying to understand all of the arcane stuff that I'm saying, it's like, well, here you go. Understand what's in here and you'll understand everything I'm saying, <laughs> you know? So you're saying the underlying things are ontology, like some sort of value theory, like ethics. Uh, and what else are you saying here? Or the other, like- Well, other I believe that there's an order of operations here. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that the most fundamental thing uh, that you can reason about in philosophy is ontology, which is to say yeah. that what makes things be, <laughs> right? What makes things be? Uh, I mean, is that like the something from nothing type question? Is that in there? Kind of. I'm not saying what made them come into being. I'm saying what okay. what what describes what they are and how they what their fundamental dynamics are as things that are. And so that that's like you know what makes stuff it what it is. And then and then that's mixed. That's like either a subfield or is related to the concept of metaphysics, right? Okay. What is stuff made of? You know, you have materialism, you have idealism, you know, the ideas that, you know, oh, it's made of material stuff. Oh, it's made of, of ideas and conceptions. There's all these answers in philosophy, right? But I feel like you have to answer those before you can really develop anything above it. Uh, and, then, and then I think that from there, you can start to build a theory of, of the human being. And in the process, you will begin to understand meaning, what meaning is in that process. Uh, and as you begin to understand meaning, the human being, what reality is, how knowledge is gathered, you will then be able to build a system of ethics. You then can understand what things will be best for the system you're looking at. You know, you've, you've developed an understanding of how the system works. So what's the best output outcomes for that system. Mm -hmm. Then from there, you will be able to understand politics writ large. Um, why indeed do we do what we do in politics? And what I found is that if you do a full, robust analysis of politics, you end up back at philosophy eventually. You end up all the way back at stuff like process. Like, oh, why are means in uh, in intertwined with ends? Because I'm a feedback loop. Because mm -hmm. when I act, I change the world. And when the world acts upon me, it changes me. And that is a cyclic process. And I can't just imagine a beginning and an end point. I have to know what the process that brings me from one end to the other is, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's intertwined, but it often has to be obscured precisely for the reasons that you've described. Because how the hell could I ever get to discussing what anarchism is with somebody if I didn't have an entire lecture series, if I'm starting from mm -hmm. that things are defined through process and, and, you know, and identity uh, and all of that? Like, it's just, it's not possible. So instead, what we do is we learn to communicate the concepts five layers up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the book is attempting to start at layer one at the very basis and work up from there. And uh, I've had some people, uh, uh, educated people, argue to me, if we use what you're saying as, as to be true, then you should start with logic. And hmm. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Because they would say logic proceeds. Because if logic is what the underpinning of existence is, then existence is reliant upon what logic is, which may be true. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if I got time for that. We'll find right, out. Right, right. <laughs> um...
I guess, uh, interesting. So, uh, I mean, like, for some reason, I'm just thinking, like, you know, logic and, like, Boolean as, like, some sort of superposition of truth and falsehood. I don't know if that's what mm -hmm. you're getting at. But um, I'm curious uh, to just, like, get a quick credence on uh, consciousness, because you, like, I mean, if you're starting with ontology, do you have any sort of, like, model of consciousness that you uh, subscribe to? Yeah, I think I think consciousness is an emergent property of a system that is. Okay, I'm not going to use technical terms then. Uh, uh, a system that has uh, relations that are very well in internally uh, uh, adjusted. Okay, so its internal ad adjustments to itself are are very um, uh, organically constituted. You might say. Mm -hmm. And its relations to its outside environment are, are, are also dynamic and organically constituted. That is to say, it's in strong feedback with its outside environment. So it's in, in strong feedback with itself and it's in strong feedback with the outside environment. And this is all holistically intertwined. This is when you find, I, I believe, um, one of the things that leads to emergence of consciousness. It's also what leads to the emergence of, of complexity in a general sense. Mm -hmm. But I would say further than this, I think one of the most fundamental things for consciousness to exist is it, for it to have an array of reprogrammable nodes. Okay. Okay. I mean, just insofar as we're talking about a fully technical uh, reasoning here, right? For example, in the brain, neurons and synapses, right? We're mm -hmm. talking about the actual, what are, what's reprogrammable? The networks of neurons and synapses, the chemical flows that, that are in feedback with those, with those networks. The networks themselves are, the, one node being on by itself means very little, but as soon as it becomes networked with a bunch of other nodes, it, you begin to find that you can, it builds everything, right? It can, mm -hmm. build, it can build our entire conceptions of existence. And the same thing, imagine, for example, in an AI, okay, when you, when you, when they, they're trying to figure out how you program an AI and they're trying to figure out all these ways. And they're like taking this very top-down approach, this very, you know, centralistic mindset, like, oh, we're going to give it this quality and that quality and this quality. And it doesn't do anything, you know, just like this dead machine that does nothing significant. But notice as soon as what they did was they created what's called a secret layer where there's just a, there's just a layer of reprogrammable nodes for which they have no interaction and can't even really figure out what the hell's going on. In, if they allow that layer to exist, boom, we get, we get modern AI. AI begins to arise. We start to get emer weird emergent properties. It's so good at things we never would have even thought it would be good at, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because I think, because it has this array of reprogrammable nodes that by themselves are just like kind of on off switch right? But as soon as they are networked together are like ways to store the relations of information that the system is coming in contact with. So for our brains in our neurology, once again, neurons and synapses in the secret layer, the nodes that it has available uh, that are available to it. Um, but I would say also, this is like in a um, dynamic process with how with the universe uh, it, it creates complexity. You know, atoms might be seen as a series of repro reprogrammable nodes that also derive almost all of their utility from, from the networking of them with one another. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think this, these are some of the more, most fundamental dynamics at play. Lastly, I would say something I'm interested in is something that Michio Kaku said one time. And he said that he thought there was a quanta of consciousness and it's the feedback loop. And that the more feedback loops you build up in a system, the more conscious it becomes. Interesting.
never played I'm, not, that. I'm not sure if it's that simple. I might be. I don't know. I'm willing to entertain it. But, you know, then we get kind of like a pantheism kind of thing where it's like, oh, well, the whole universe is feedback loops. Oh, well, quantum systems are an infinite number of feedback loops. Are quantum systems super conscious? You know, and it's like, uh, <laughs> I st start to kind of have these, these sorts of questions. But I get what he's saying insofar as, you know, the, it seems like as you create these bigger and bigger assemblies of feedback cycles, you allow the substrate for consciousness to begin, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, the, you know, without going into like neurobiology and stuff, which is not my subject of strength, um, those are kind of my general insights as to what, what I think produces consciousness. Um, are, you, are you into like Hofstadter, Douglas Hofstadter? I, ha I actually have good, good old Asher, Asher Bach on my shelf, um, but let's see how far I got in, I'll get it. I think that's everybody's favorite book to claim that they've read. Um, no, 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 read I have, I'm not going to claim it. I've got that far through. Yeah. <laughs> that's how far through. There you go. I have a buddy who was always like, yeah, man, girl, I should rock. And then be like, so what is it about? And he's like, <laughs> just like no answer. Um, yeah, I, I have a strange loop. Or I am a strange loop somewhere around here. Oh, right here. And started it but um i think i think that uh, over the years just recollecting what i had read in here i actually do numerous times think about how he also might have been kind of intimating some of that you know something mm -hmm. about how loops feedback loops and an iteration is an extremely important phenomenon so yeah, I think, I think iteration is extremely important, but I think, I don't think iteration is just like something unique to consciousness. I think iteration is down at the base of, of existence, right? Mm -hmm. Iteration is existence. It, the, the fact that there is one second and then two seconds and three seconds is the universe iterating itself across the seconds. You know what I'm saying? So iteration is a fundamental precept of existence as far as I'm concerned, but um, I'd be I mean, interested. That's what you need for criticality, right? Yeah, I mean, if you can't have it, yeah, you won't have, if a system doesn't have iteration, it doesn't move. And a system that doesn't move can't achieve self-organized criticality <laughs> because self-organized mm -hmm. criticality comes from the agents having particular um, uh, qualities as they move through time. So then if you, you know, it's just like, you can't even have emergence or anything without time moving. In fact, it might be said, the only state in which it looks like time wasn't moving was before the big bang and there was zero dynamics to anything. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it almost seems like for existence to exist, time has to move. And that kind of fits that logic, the, the iterative logic, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it, I don't, I won't, I won't claim that I know what's in here, you know, <laughs> but, but uh, it see, I kind of have some recollection that he was kind of aiming at this, this similar sort of uh, conclusion. Mm -hmm. Word. Well, I feel like I don't need to keep you longer than the two hours. Um, I mean, is this book done and you just need to like get it out there or are you no, still? No. no, this is like, it's a long process. Well, the, the science fiction book is finished. Book, huh? Yeah, no, yeah. It's a, it's a long project. Oh my God. The, the science fiction book is complete. And uh, hey, if anybody in your audience wants to publish my science <laughs> fiction book, just, you know, get a hold of John and. <laughs> but uh as far as the philosophy book no i mean that that might be that might be a life goal kind of thing you know the scale of what i'm describing there is kind of ridiculous 
you know, I could be in my forties before I finish that. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. I was just saying, I'm going to try to hustle it if, if needed, but, uh, no, no, hustle podcast. the science fiction book. Yeah. There, I want to get, <laughs> let's get that published. Well, um, anything else you want to mention before we sign off? Um, go visit my channel. Um, it's no, I promise that there are videos that are nowhere near this level of, 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 uh, of depth. Uh, you can, you can find very variable level of depth. I promise. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you end up liking my work, go become a patron. Uh, I'm just finally starting to transition into a life where my Patreon is paying enough that I could quit one of my jobs, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. So now I have one job and the Patreon and that's my income stream. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, go look at the stuff. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Anarch YouTube. If you want to find me on there, uh, where I just pretty much just fight with authoritarian leftists all day. That's my entire <laughs> life on Twitter. There's, there's nothing else. Uh, you don't even fucks with the, the authoritarian rightists. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do. Yeah, I do. But it's like, they, it, at this point, it's like, I've said everything I'm going to say, like, mm -hmm. all it is, is just us antagonizing each other. You know, it's, it's literally just, you know, it just escalates so quickly to like, well, see you on the opposite side of a firearm, you know, like, it's just like, <laughs> it's really? like, um, that's the end result of arguing with fascists. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll pretty much talk with anybody on Twitter so long as they're not bad faith actors, you know, right. but, uh, fascists are pretty much always bad, bad faith actors. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, man, well, uh, Daniel, thanks for talking to me. Uh, everybody should check out Anarch on YouTube and tour, like, like he said, um, but yeah, thanks for joining me as a fun conversation that's gone a lot of places <laughs> yeah definitely yeah no i enjoyed it we'll talk soon that was good dude Peace.